This is ACM Bytecast, a podcast series from the Association for Computing Machinery, the world's largest educational and scientific computing society. We talk to researchers, practitioners, and innovators who are at the intersection of computing research and practice. They share their experiences, the lessons they've learned, and their own visions for the future of computing. I am your host, Rashmi Mohan. Talking about artificial intelligence and its impact on humanity has been a trending topic across the world. We are either touting its miraculous benefits to every aspect of our life or predicting the doomsday scenarios that it could bring our way. Love it or hate it, there's no ignoring it. Our next guest might arguably be the definitive voice on all things related to AI. At last count, a few hundred connections away from one million followers on LinkedIn and a LinkedIn Top Voice 2020 finalist, he is definitely a force to be reckoned with. Steve Noori is an award-winning technical leader, a data scientist, an academic, an entrepreneur having founded multiple ventures, and a global leader on artificial intelligence. He is on the Forbes Technology Council, a committee member at the International Organization for Standardization, or ISO, and the founder of the nonprofit organization AI for Diversity. Steve, welcome to ACM Bytecast. Thank you for having me, Rashmi. Great. No, we're super excited to have this conversation with you. I'd like to lead with a, a question that I ask all my guests, Steve. If you could please introduce yourself and talk about you know, what you currently do, as well as what brought you into this field of work in computing. Yeah, I mean, my journey to computing and uh, I guess data science is, um, is a little bit of a boring one, which I, as a child, I started with... Um, playing with computer games when I was 10 years old. I think my dad has a plan for, for it because he bought a computer not for gaming and I ended up playing a lot of um, interesting uh, computer games of the time, probably early 90s, which was um, not the highest quality of the graphics, but it was um, nonetheless interesting. So it, it just evolved from playing computer games and then trying to understand how to make computer games. To be honest, I was thinking like, how can we produce programs that can do all those graphics and sound? When I was like 14 or 15, I went to a computer sort of educational course and there was a person sitting beside me who was doing programming and I was just watching. It looked like magic. Like he was just writing couple of sentences with numbers and then finally after you know executing it you would see some shapes with colors and screen so it was like wow that that is magic that's what i actually wanted all, all the time to learn so when he left i started playing with his uh, with his codes so i started you know changing those numbers and things that i could understand like um you know it was easier to play with like colors it was like a red i changed it to maybe green and then you know i could see which one of those shapes are changing colors so essentially it was like a streamlined jumping into programming when i was 14 or 15 and from there i was always fascinated with uh, computer coding i did codings in many different languages starting from c c++ and then visuals visual uh, base microsoft visual basic and c sharp and uh, i did my bachelor's in software engineering as well 
as I said, it was just so straightforward to what I'm doing right now that like I, when I hear like people have very interesting background of like doing something totally different and accidentally finding out about data science, I sometimes envy. I was a, I was a project manager for a project like hospital information system. They were, we were collecting a lot of data, a lot of data related to patients, medicines, procedures, and I always wanted to understand like if I can do something more with those data. It's it seems that we have some some ways of querying the, these data, but it's it's not as dynamic, it's not as complex to you know extract all the interesting nuggets in those data. So I started doing research around 20 years ago to understand what in the world is used to extract those patterns and more interesting insights. That's where I kind of got into data analytics, I guess, and did my master's in data analytics. Back then, the the terminology data science was not, I guess, coined or it was not as popular. So we were using knowledge extraction or data analytics uh, in the kind of uh, same way. Yeah, um, long story short, um, I have worked for many companies, public and private sectors, mostly government and public sectors since then, as a lead data scientist and head of data science, managing teams, delivering products, doing research. It was an interesting roller coaster ride of working on in startups, very fast paced, and then working for public sector, which is much, much different from that sort of environment. And uh, these days, I mostly focus on the, the projects that I'm running myself in the private sector. I, I have founded uh, two organizations and um, Hackmakers and AI for Diversity, and um, also advising a couple of companies. Um, I'm a, as, as you just mentioned, ad, uh, I'm an advisory board for Harvard Business Review. I'm also a council member for Forbes and do a couple of little things here and there and enjoying, I guess, the geek world of the technology and data. Yeah, that's fascinating. Not the word of choice that I would use in terms of little, but an incredible journey. And I don't think you need to envy anybody, um, Steve. I think um, those of us that find that passion early on, I think it's an incredible journey for you to be able to build on that interest from playing computer games to actually, you know, being so deeply involved in data science. And, you know, the one of the things that, and I know you've had such a diverse sort of career, you know, almost seems like a lot lot of it is you know self-motivated a lot of self-learning where you're looking at code from what a friend was doing to then saying hey I want to actually understand how I can extract more value from this data I know you also worked in the Australian government's research institution a CSIRIO I'm sorry CSIRO so I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that phase um Steve like what kind of areas of research did you pursue yes um you're actually right about being self-motivated. I just randomly find something that I'm, I care about and just my brain locks into it. And I have no way out until I find what I want to learn or, you know, at least I need to satisfy that curiosity. As you mentioned, like the, the work that I did for CSIR, I was working as head of data science for Data 61, which is a sort of a business uh, subsidiary of CSIRO, focusing on data science and AI. I was responsible for 
a great team of you know researchers, software engineers, product managers, and um, we had um, three major projects back then. Uh, one of them was a little bit, uh, I guess, um, more entrepreneurial, which was a product. We were trying to understand what are the traits of the students that make them to be successful finding a job during or after graduation. So we made a product as a website and then we asked, um, you know, we tried to match students with jobs in startups or, you know, smaller companies. And by doing that, we started collecting data and use those data to understand those um, traits. There was a couple of, um, you know, studies that published articles and studies that published and we also collaborated very closely with universities in that regard. Apart from that, there was another interesting research. That one was a little bit, I guess, more different in the, in the topic, but at the same time, interesting. So there was a team of researchers uh, in, that we were working on understanding or predicting the financial outcome of the companies using the public data, which is not necessarily indication of their, uh, their, you know, uh, the financial stage or their income. For example, what is the current state of their website and the language they use in their website, the technology that they have used in their website, or the information that anything that we could find and scrape it from the internet that is available in a public domain. It is interesting that we were able to predict the company's sort of uh, financial situations in terms of uh, being successful or not, just using this public data with a pretty decent accuracy. I think it was around 60% or something around that, which is, you know, not not too bad because um, essentially we didn't have the direct indications of the the work that they were doing. and. it helped us to, you know, also help the government when uh, government wants to give away grants or, you know, help these companies. Sometimes they don't have access to a lot of information about them. And, and that be somehow a helpful tool for decision makers. And, um, and it's like um, these two, I guess, were the main interesting research projects. Those other a couple of other things that uh, the team were doing, but I'm very proud of the these ones because we could be able to finalize it during the time that I was there. Yeah, no, they sound like um, great projects, and also to me, it sounds like you know one you know of course the government was interested in because you know there was it was a a good way for them to understand you know where might be the areas where they should be sort of investing or at least marketing the new grants that they might have available. But also seems like the targets that you were or the target audience that you were reaching out to probably were willing participants, right? Because there is a fair amount of benefit that they get, whether it's the entrepreneurs that are looking for sort of funding or the students that are looking for jobs. Did you find that it was easy enough to be able to gather this data with the participants? Yeah, 100%. For example, for students, it was even more than willing. They were very excited about being part of this platform because we found that it's much more important for us to deliver value before asking for any data or any help. So we, that's why I said there was a little bit of entrepreneurial 
sort of a mindset behind it. A lot of, I guess, government research is directly like going into, you know, databases and the, the information that is available or sending surveys. And that's just, it means that there's nothing for you in it. It's all for the research, which is, you know, eventually it would go to the public, but there is no immediate, I guess, benefit for the person. But we made a website to actually match these people to like a, an internship or graduate roles. And that's where they could get a lot of benefit because they could just literally use it as a, as a tool to, you know, find a job. And this information would just be something they would fill in the form to, you know, find the perfect match. So it was very, very, very easy. There was a lot of excitement from our students' uh, side and academics were also very helpful. At the same time, startups were also very supportive of this project because they could find, you know, higher quality students matched with their requirements. So I guess that's a sort of a best scenario, like everybody's winning and, and uh, getting the value out of this relationship. Yeah, no, for sure. That sounds like, uh, you know, definitely a match match made in heaven. And one thing I wanted to tap into, you were talking about the entrepreneurial nature of these projects that you were working on. You've been an academic, um, you know, you've been a teacher in some part in your career and some, and you continue to be somebody who enjoys sharing knowledge, right, based on your online interactions. So, did you feel like you had that spirit of entrepreneurship and being able to sort of apply your research to build like products or build value right from the beginning? Like, how did you approach this whole idea of these projects or even your work with um, Data61? Yeah, first of all, about the teaching, I was always fascinated about the power of teaching in terms of learning. Like, um, I remember very, very early days when I was... Um, probably 17, I started teaching to students at high school. So back then, you know, my programming skills was a little bit beyond what is expected for a high school student. So I was able to leverage that to, you know, help others. As I said, like I, I could understand like what is in it for me in terms of getting the returns. And that was the motivator for me. I could see that I'm um, helping others, but at the same time, I'm learning and it helps me, motivates me to stay on top of the trends, update myself, push myself forward. So from there, I guess uh, I was always passionate about teaching. And when I went back to university to teach um, advanced machine learning, I exactly thought about the same scenarios like, okay, so how can I do something that would help students get ready for a job and then at the same time make myself interested and excited and that particular course was literally the most advanced course for postgraduate students it's it's called advanced machine learning and me coming from you know sort of a outside the academia it was also interesting for students to come to my class and ask the questions about how the real life sort of a, a situation uh, is for a data professional, how they're going to leverage it in their in their work later, and a lot of questions that made them, you know, more engaged. And that's a boring uh, sort of course, which is, you know, very deep into machine learning and math and stats just uh, became more 
interesting and engaging for them, I guess. I hope so, I guess. And um, as you mentioned, also, when I was at Data 61 in Cyro, um, I always wanted to think, how can I take those studies further? I really enjoy the interaction with people, uh, the impact of the work that I'm doing, and also, I guess, uh, being more closer to the consumers or the users of those uh, projects. I think that has been always obvious. So yeah, it, uh, from there, I was just like, my mindset always was like, um, which one of these projects can be spin off from Cyber and Data61, which is, I think that's an interesting one that we were able to spin off that project, the website from Cyro, and that became a commercial product that um, you know was sort of acquired by another company, which is like an, a very successful, I guess, uh, outcome for a research project to go forward and, and become an infect, impactful business. And uh, kudos to the team and all the people that helped during this project, the managers, the directors, and all the, the team members to make it happen. That's such a um, such a great story. Um, thank you for uh, for sharing that. And one of the other things that you mentioned, uh, which I think is you know immensely uh, valuable, is that to you teaching is a method of learning. And you know I, I agree. I think most of us also feel that way. That the more you teach a certain topic, the better your understanding of it grows, and you sort of you know the finesse with which you're able to communicate and really get to the meat of the topic uh, improves with every sort of every subsequent conversation that you have around that topic. I know that you currently, you know, are such a prolific content creator, if you will. Um, you share a diverse pool of content um, online, on LinkedIn. You talk about startups that are making waves in AI or, you know, tools for anybody who wants to enter the field. And you focus on ways to sort of build diversity in, um, you know, in the AI field. I'm wondering what sparked that, right? Was it a part of this whole, like, I love to teach and so I'm going to share information with, with folks and help them, enable them to sort of break into this field? Yeah, I mean, that's actually pretty much aligned with uh, my teaching at, at university. There was a mixture of things that has happened at that point of time, at that stage of my life. I wanted to grow my network professionally and also I was teaching data science at university and my students were really enjoying the content and they were asking me for some sort of, you know, recommendations about um, future studies in, in different uh, relevant topics or how they can get more hands-on with, with those, you know, theoretical parts of the course. So I was always researching about what is available, what is the, you know, the library is available in Python or what is a new platform? Just because I had to answer those questions. And, you know, as a, um, as a teacher, as a lecturer, you, you try to be the know all and try to answer as much as question as, as possible. So then and I was like, okay, so I'm doing this research. I'm sharing it with my own student. They are loving it. I would like to try to see if I can use the, I guess, social media and share it with a broader audience because that's the reason that social media exists. You, you you can, I guess, get more audience around the world. And I just started doing that for some time. And being consistent was very important. 
I was literally sharing things uh, once or twice a week at the point of time that I started like six years ago. And um, at that point, it seems that data science was still a little bit of mystery. I don't know if it is, it is still a mystery or not, but a lot of people wanted to enter into this field. They didn't know how to do it and they didn't know where to find the right material. There was a little bit of hype around AI and data science. You know, the, there was a lot of interest in learning and also it was a very high paid sort of a job. So all of them together and a coincident of me being available, sharing it, uh, it seems that I was one of the pioneers of the, I guess, uh, learning materials in uh, data science and AI on LinkedIn. And that uh, kind of helped me to get a lot of visibility through that short time frame. And then later when I kind of my focus shifted from teaching to actually doing things and those entrepreneurial projects, then I started mixing my content with the latest innovations and the latest projects in AI and data science, the innovative projects that have impact, especially whatever is using AI to deliver some social impact or pushing forward the, the technology. And that also opened up another front. And a lot of people started engaging with my post, not necessarily wanting to learn about AI in the sense of doing it. They wanted to learn, they wanted to understand what AI is doing to their current or future and um, they wanted to know uh, how can they leverage AI without being an um, AI engineer or a, a data professional. So that was the sort of the, the story. And, and through this six years of um, nonstop being available, sharing things that people like it, and that's essentially what I liked for myself and what I enjoyed and in, am interested to learn. I kind of um, got a lot of uh, people supporting my content and I appreciate all of their support. And it seems that this is sort of my brand right now that everybody knows what I'm going to share every day. People are excited, probably interested, hopefully that um, see my post about um, the, the future of AI or maybe a bit of nuggets about how to learn a particular, I guess, tool or maybe a new platform. ACM Bytecast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite platform. Yeah, and that's such an amazing and interesting uh, trajectory, um, Steve, because like you said, you know, started out with sharing content for people to learn. But I'm sure as you started to share more content around, hey, these are the new innovative applications that are coming up in this space. I mean, those are of interest to you. But I'm sure that also drove commentary on people sort of giving you, you know, views that probably aligned with yours as well as use views that sort of opposed yours, right? And that's a part of the, the journey that you talk about, you know, teaching that leads to learning. I'm sure that, you know, enhanced your own sort of knowledge about each of these areas yes. that you were talking about. Uh, so the other thing that I want to touch upon, which I think you briefly mentioned, is talking about personal brand. Because really, at one almost 1 million uh, followers on LinkedIn, this is a very, very significant part of your identity now. 
And as a practitioner using the power of LinkedIn and understanding how to leverage this wide reach for the benefit of others and yourself, it's pretty amazing how you've been able to do it. But I would love to understand what do you think is the biggest sort of driver for this? I mean, I know you have, you're personally motivated to share, but what would you say is a good you know, reason why anybody who's sort of navigating their career should think about it? Why should anybody consider building their brand online you know, from a technical perspective? Of course. I mean, like everybody can have their own motivation of um, why they, they want to be in a social media platform or why they want to use it to make their own personal brand. But what I've learned through these years is that having a personal brand will sort of give you another dimension from being an employee. Because as an employee, you are sort of bound to your employer and all of your identity is within your interaction with your employer. And uh, that is fine, but you can always have more than that. You can always have leverages in terms of, let's say, finding a new job, finding a better job, or connecting with like-minded people that will bring more opportunities. You, and this is for everyone. Just literally everyone should think about what are the other opportunities out there for them to grow, to connect to people, to find better, maybe better, more interesting careers in the future? A social media platform like LinkedIn specifically provides huge amount of opportunities. That is, you know, sometimes people used to tell me back then when I started, oh, LinkedIn is just a placeholder for your resume. Like you need to just come back here when you're looking for a job or you want to update your resume, that is supposed to be LinkedIn. I mean, I understand probably when it started, that kind of started as a, as a resume placeholder or every six months you would share your new certificate or whenever you change job, you just change your title and everybody would just say congratulations. It evolved from there to being a content platform now. After Microsoft acquired LinkedIn, they had a huge push to make it a content creation platform, essentially similar to YouTube, to TikTok, whatever other platforms that are out there, but in a professional manner. So you you need to just make sure that you stick to certain criteria, which, you know, it is, uh, it is not very different from the other platforms, but you might want to share the content that are relevant to your career or would help you to get connected to your future customers or employers. That's what I can understand. But at the same time, another takeaway is that by adding value to your audience without expecting something direct and I guess uh, short term, you would accumulate huge amount of, I guess, uh, opportunities that you can always go back to, I guess, leverage in any sense. Like if you want to be an entrepreneur in 10 years from now, even if you don't know what is exactly going to look like, it is better to start connecting with people and start adding value and um, make people to be aware of you and have a positive image of you. Because the moment that you actually need someone to listen to you, it is too late to start. I mean, we can always argue it's never too late to start, but I'm, I'm going to just go out of the 
they would say, it is too late to start when you need it because things happen in sort of a very, very step-by-step and long-term fashion. You need to be consistent. You need to think about a long-term gain to be able to do it. And then when you already have your business and you want to talk about an interesting product that you want to release tomorrow, that uh, is probably a little bit, you know, late for you. Any students that are learning any courses, they need to start sharing more on LinkedIn. They need to be more active. They always ask me like, I mean, like I'm not a professional. I haven't learned this topic yet. I'm not an expert. I don't feel that I need to talk about it because there are lots of professors in here. There are lots of professionals with years of years of experience. And I don't have that, I guess, uh, the right to talk about any topic. And that is that cannot be any wronger than this. Like it is totally incorrect understanding of uh, social media. You can literally talk about your learning journey. Like I'm just going to make it very straightforward and easy. If you go to a class and they teach you math and stats, you can literally come to this platform and say, I learned about this particular equation today. I found it very interesting. This is the background. This is what it is going to be used for, and uh, maybe a couple of links to the places to learn more about it, and that's it. This is how you can start. It doesn't need you to to be a, a professor to talk about an equation or anything that um, you learn from maybe a movie, like uh, any even like a motivational source of motivation from a movie or something that you experience in, in real life, at, at work, at university, at college. All of them can be great materials and people would appreciate it. The other aspect of sharing on social media is that always you would get people coming back to you with uh, some sort of feedback. Some of them might not be very, I guess, uh, helpful. Some of them might look like a little bit too aggressive. That is the reality. You know, that's the reality. You would learn from it anyway. Whenever you have a stance, whenever you have an opinion, you know, putting a line in the sand, there would be people that would agree with you and some people would disagree. And that is a good position to be. If you want to be known and you want to have your own, I guess, um, identity, then you need to have an opinion. If we're all afraid of putting our opinions out there just because we will be judged and we would uh, get might get negative feedback, people might disagree with us, then the other way is just to be indifferent and uh, stay quiet. I cannot see any uh, benefit of just becoming invisible in the world because somebody might not be happy with uh, our stance. I think that's such an incredibly valuable um, viewpoint, Steve, because I think that's probably what holds many of us back, right? The fear of being judged. But also the other piece that you brought up, which is you don't need to be working on something pathbreaking or something that has never been said before in order to share, you know, what your viewpoint is. Like you said, you know, if I learned something, I think my journey of learning that same math equation that maybe 10 other people have learned might just be slightly different. And I think putting your journey out there, your, uh, you know, the way you learn, as well as maybe some of the challenges that you face, 
might help someone else, you know, feel more validated that, okay, you know, I'm not completely off the mark. And, you know, there are other people who have had this similar experience. And I think of that particularly, especially when it comes to diversity. And, you know, there's a lot of commentary on how, especially folks that come from, you know, a slightly diverse background and in tech, whether that's gender or age or whatever that might be, are hesitant to participate in these forums because, uh, you know, they don't feel like they belong. And I think the more of us that do that, um, I think it's, it just makes the entire environment a little bit more welcoming. That's totally 100% true. Like, even for people with diverse background, this is the best place to find the others that are supporting you or similar to you. Like, this is, um, even if I'm a minority, in my geographical location, I can still find people with a similar background on social media. It's not too difficult. And, you know, it's out of like maybe 500 million people on LinkedIn, you would be able to find a couple of thousand that totally, you know, have the same experience or similar experience. They would be supportive. You would find people that would, that are helpful. They teach you something. They would be able to give you opportunities. So that's just thinking about, I guess the half full of the cup is the best way to go forward. I think you don't need the 500 million people on, on LinkedIn to, to be able to leverage the value of LinkedIn. It just literally starts from the people that you know at university, the people that are maybe are available in your geographical location, and the people that have the same journey as you you are having right now. The students maybe, the, if you are learning anything about, let's say, computer science, then that's where you will shine. Yeah, no, an extremely refreshing um, perspective. Um, And to sort of reiterate what you had said earlier is, you know, your career itself is a marathon, not a sprint. And so investing in it in the long term, for the long term, in terms of, you know, thinking about where it might go, but starting to invest in building that brand for yourself is super important. and, And this is a great way to do that. I did want to talk about your two entrepreneurial ventures as well that you're currently involved with, um, Steve. One of them is is called Hackmakers. What brought about the interest in hackathons? I mean, it's obviously very, very popular. Um, it's an exciting thing for engineers to participate in. What did you find valuable and, and what is the value proposition that you feel um, companies that engage with you um, get out of it? What is the ROI that they're looking for? It is um, another interesting story. I was the head of data science at um, ACS, Australian Computer Society in Australia. And then what happened is just during the COVID, like probably the first or second month of the COVID, there was a news about Australia will have probably too many COVID cases very soon and uh, we will not have enough ICU beds for those people in need. So... There was a conversation about how can we flatten the curve and how can we probably stay at home even more, take care of ourselves, make sure that we would not hit that particular problem of uh, demand and supply. And at that point, we came up with an idea of running a hackathon. Like, uh, let's have a hackathon. People stay at home during the weekend. I think that was... uh, it was probably around the Easter holidays where everybody was like, not sure what's going to happen during the Easter holidays. Are people going to go out and socialize and sort of uh, make the situation go worse? Or 
are we going to all together decide to stay home and make sure that it doesn't go wrong? And we thought maybe that is a good idea for people that are staying at home, especially the techies, because like we, I believe the hackathons are techies playground. So for techies, maybe that's a good way to spend time during the uh, the holidays since they are locked up at homes and they can not do anything fun. They joined this hackathon, which was called Flatten the Curve to, you know, socialize, build something. And um, essentially, we, we had two goals of keeping people interested, happy at home, and also at the same time, delivering some solutions for this particular problem of the COVID in early days. It went super popular. We got like within 10 days of, uh, you know, the, the project timeframe was literally 10 days from the moment that we started advertising and talking about it to the moment we delivered this hackathon. And in 10 days, we're able to get around 2000 participants in majorly Australia and New Zealand. And that was the aha moment, the beginning of thinking about running hackathons. So later on, when I sort of uh, left ACS, I was thinking like, I need to, this is my passion. I loved it. I want to do it more, more frequently. And it seems that this is something that probably during COVID people would be more interested. So I literally started with the team, with my team to run hackathons like every couple of months as a fun side hustle for us. Like this was not a, not, it wasn't supposed to be a job. It was supposed to be just a fun thing to do. But then during the, such a short time, it became very popular and it got a lot of interest of these large corporates to be part of it as a partner, as a sponsor from Microsoft, Google, Oracle, IBM, and you name it. They were reaching out to us. We were reaching out to them. And that was a very good collaboration happening there that sort of showed us that there is a value of uh, doing it better and um, I guess more frequently. So then it became an, a startup. We got funded by the government. We also got some investors and we are building the platform right now. It is an innovation, sort of an end-to-end innovation platform, which will enable people to go through phases to be able to come up with some interesting, innovative solutions for problems from the ideations, from, you know, coming up with different ways of tackling a, a problem systematically, and then collaborating to deliver a POC or an MVP in a platform that would allow you to collaborate in a virtual environment. That is the goal. We're in an early stage of delivering that right now. There is something interesting happening. We are going to do it in a Web3 fashion, in a decentralized way, which means that we're going to open it to the public to contribute to these projects and to own it. That is probably something that will revolutionize the, the whole community aspect of the internet in future. And we would like to be one of the pioneers of leveraging that uh, sort of mindset of Web3. That's, uh, I guess... Uh, the next step for us, we have done hackathons uh, with a couple of great companies and, and organizations around the world. And the last hackathon was uh, the World Innovation Day, 
which was the second time we did it with the help of uh, international organizations like UNESCO and um, all the big tech companies also usually will come in to deliver such an interesting project that would help the global community come together and think about innovative ways to tackle the problems that are we are having all together around the world, which uh, is identified by United Nations as global goals. So it was a very successful event. I guess around 4,000 people participated and we are hoping to continue that uh, fashion and um, always uh, try to innovate the way that we're doing it ourselves. We learned a lot in the last couple of um, years. I think we've been running it for two years already. And I guess this is an evolving uh, community project for us. Well, I mean, congratulations. That kind of impact and the, um, you know, the amazing work that you're doing is definitely going to have like far reaching impact. I think the, you know, the the fact that you're also now opening it up for contributions will only mean that, you know, it'll be so much the richer with the newer ideas that come in um, for you to be able to grow it. And also, you know, it sounds like a lot of the projects that you've been working on recently is more for, you know, tech for good, which is always, uh, you know, something that's very warm and, and close to my heart for sure. We are, you know, I, I could go on with this conversation, Steve, but we are sort of, you know, running out of time. But I would love to ask you for our final bite, what are you most excited about um, in the field of AI over the next, say, five years? That's a very, um, I guess, uh, difficult question to answer because I'm excited about a lot of things, a lot of things happening, very good projects in, in different um, directions, different applications of AI in industries. One thing that I'm very excited is one of the projects that we are pushing forward, AI for Diversity, and it is essentially a community-led project. It's a non-for-profit community-led project that would bring together different groups of people with different backgrounds, the people with different socioeconomical background, with the cultural background, with different gender, everything that can sort of bring this diversity together would be ideal for us. We have started it around six, seven months ago. We already have more than 10,000 people signed up from all over the world to be part of this initiative. This initiative essentially is planning to educate and enable people with different backgrounds, but also is going to help us understand how can we ensure the fairness and responsible AI, uh, the notion of responsibility for AI. And it doesn't mean that AI we're going to be responsible. We're going to make a responsible AI that is transparent, accountable. People are making it in a fashion that it's fair and explainable. And if something goes wrong, we are able to understand it, mitigate the risk. And if not, there is a way to actually for people to intervene and make sure that it will not impact anyone in a negative way. So that is one topic very close to my heart. And very soon we will have, uh, we will start opening the chapters in different countries, collaborating with our partners and um, see how can we, you know, deliver some social impact for good. 
That is definitely something to be very excited about. Thank you so much for telling us about that. I hope our listeners also, um, you know, check it out and participate. I know I for certain will. Steve, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us at ACM Bytecast. Thank you very much, Rashmi. ACM Bytecast is a production of the Association for Computing Machineries Practitioners Board. To learn more about ACM and its activities, visit acm.org. For more information about this and other episodes, please visit our website at learning.acm.org slash bytecast. That's learning.acm.org slash b-y-t-e-c-a-s-t.